you have your Bibles, turn with me again to Jude this morning. Jude, the general epistle of Jude. General just means he wrote it to everybody, not one particular group of people, not one particular church. Um, he wrote it to the church as a whole. Um, it is just before you get to the book of Revelation and right after John's three epistles, just one, uh, just a one-chapter book, not the shortest book in the New Testament, but um, just one chapter. Last week, let me jump off with these two verses. Um, I quoted them last week, and I'm going to quote them again just to kind of get us started. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 18 gives us instruction as God's people. The whole chapter 12 is about, in light of everything that Christ has done for us, then this is what we ought to do for him. We don't earn our salvation. He's bought and paid for it fully. Um, we give him all the glory for all that he's done for us, all that he's done um, uh, in us and all that he's going to do through us. But uh, in nearly every letter that Paul wrote, he talked about the sufficiency of what Christ has done, and then he talked about the necessity of what that means for us in our personal lives. There was the doctrinal side of it, then the practical side of it. There was this is who you are in Christ, and this is how you ought to behave yourself in Christ. And, and Romans chapter 12 is where he started, and he began that by saying, um, that we ought to live our lives as living sacrifices, that we ought to lay it down at his feet, as we sang about this morning, as living sacrifices. And then he just kind of, he starts running through some bullet points about what specifically that means for our life. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, he said, if as much as possible, if it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Peace-loving, peace-seeking people. That's what he's called us to be. But then you look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. And he said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. Think not that I am come to bring peace on the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And he went on to say, a man's enemies are going to be the people that live in his own household. I'm come set a father against a son, and a mother against a daughter, and vice versa. And, and, and if you... Live in this world with my word as your guide. You're going to have conflict. So while we are a peace-loving, peace-seeking people, it's obvious from what Jesus said there are some things worth being in contention about. There are some things that are worth fighting for. There are some things worth contending for in this world. We do not have to, nor does he expect us to go along to get along. That's not who he's called us to be. That's not what, he was not crucified because he was a really nice guy. He was crucified because he didn't go along to get along. The, the, the 12 apostles who suffered martyrdoms were not crucified because they went along to get along. They said, we've got to obey God rather than man. We've got to proclaim the truth whether you like the truth or not. So there, there, we have a calling as much as we can to live at peace. But at the same time, recognize that Jesus said that, he didn't, that his word would not bring peace. That sword, he said, I came to bring a sword. His word will not always bring peace. Sometimes it will bring contention. There are some things that are worth fighting for, and truth is one of those things that's worth fighting for. Now, James, James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus. Half-brother simply means Jesus didn't have a biological father. So Joseph was not his biological father. God was his father. Um, but they shared the same mother. And the Bible identifies them in several places and lists their names. Jude, his real, his real name listed in other places in the scriptures, Judas. 
of course, nobody wanted to be identified with Judas after what Judas did. So he's called Jude. It's the shortened version of Judas. Um, but he and James were both half-brothers of Jesus. They grew up with him. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah until post-resurrection. The Bible said that they thought, this guy, we, we grew up alongside of him. We know who he is. We know how he was raised. And, and they, they, they did not believe his claims. Um, even witnessing the miracles, they stepped away from Jesus. The Bible says that. But post-resurrection, one of the first people that Jesus showed himself to was James. And, and Paul wrote about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He showed himself to his half-brother. And his brothers became believers and became leaders in the church. And Jude was one of those. We talked about last week how he introduced himself in this letter as a servant of the Lord Jesus. Not as a friend, not as a brother, but as a servant. Literally a bond slave. Literally he said, my life has been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, I am bound to him as his, as his servant, as his slave, and I, I belong to him in every way. So he was um, their master and their Lord. He wrote this letter to those that he said were called by God, who had been cleansed by God, who were cared for by God, and who were capable about an emergency situation that he had seen arise in the church. By the way, if you read Second Peter chapter, especially chapter 2, but Second Peter in general, um, and both of them were likely leaders in the church that gathered in Jerusalem. And so both of them had the same heart and the same mind, the same burdens, and they, it looks like you could lay these two epistles down by each other and compare them uh, almost... Uh, almost word for word in some places where uh, Peter and Jude were obviously comparing notes and there was something in the church that needed to be dealt with. There was something in the church that was worth fighting for. There was an emergency situation that needed some attention. And he begged them in that third verse to contend for the faith that was once and for all times delivered to the saints. Contend, fight for the faith. And when you, when you think about what the faith is, the faith is everything that is contained in this word that lays in our lap. That is the faith. That's the, that, this is um, the, the, first, the, the first, the foremost, and final uh, authority in our life is the Word of God. And so when he tells them to contend for the faith, he's telling them to contend for, uh, for, for, the, for the authority, for the inerrancy, for the sufficiency of the unchanging Word of God. Contend for the faith as it was delivered unto the saints. Don't let anybody get away from that. Fight for it. And so if we're going to be contenders, if we're going to fight the fights that are worth fighting, if we're going to fight the fights that are, that are necessary to fight, then one of the first things that we have to do after we recognize that there is a fight worth fighting is to identify who our opponents are. We need to know who we're fighting. And I know that sounds strange coming out of a Christian pastor's mouth. But to contend means to fight. To contend means to struggle against something. So if there's something that's worth fighting for, we need to identify who the opponents are. And here's what will happen if we ignore the fact that we have opponents. It just intensifies their presumption against us. If we ignore the presence of opponents, it just emboldens them in their attack against us. If, if, we, uh, if we are just passive... While the faith is being attacked, it won't do anything but make them more aggressive. If we don't stand up and stand out and speak out, our passivity will fuel their aggression. And, and the truth is, the more bashful we become, the more bold they'll become. And I can show you, 
example after example in both the scripture and in history itself that when you are silent, you give consent. And when you are passive, you will get overrun. The more bashful we get about our faith, the more boldly people will become when they attack the faith that we stand on. So, before we read this morning, I want you to understand that the Bible tells us we don't have any business judging the world. The world's lost. That's the world's problem is they're lost. When we stand before Jesus, there are going to be two categories of people, lost and saved. And Paul made it clear that it's not our job to go outside of the church and judge the world, but it is our job to judge those that, that call themselves part of the church. So don't, don't, I don't want you to think at the beginning of this message this morning that all of our opponents are outside the doors of the church. They're not. Some of them have identified themselves with the church. Some of them are filling up the church pews, and some of them are even filling up the church pulpits. Jude chapter, Jude, there ain't but one chapter. Verse number three, we read it last week, and then I'm going to read verse number four, and we're going to dive off into verse number four. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. He wanted to write a letter of encouragement. He wanted to write a letter talking to them about the common ground that they have in their salvation. He wanted just to build them up in their most holy faith. But he said, I, I wanted to write to you about that. But it was needful. It was necessary for me to write unto you and exhort you, to beg you, to beseech you, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Then verse 4, he, says, he tells us why. He says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our Lord, uh, the grace of our God, into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what he said. There are traitors in the church. There are treasonous traitors who have crept into the church undetected at first. But the more you look at them and the more you hear them and the more you observe them, you realize that they are not of the faith. They are not in the faith. And you are to contend for the faith against them as your opponents. Now James, Jude called them ungodly. I looked the word up. Now, we, we've got our own mentality of what ungodly looks like, but it literally means, if you look it up in Strong's, it literally means to, to be destitute of reverential awe towards God, to not have any reverential awe towards God. And you, one of the things I said last week was this. Listen, Jesus ain't our homeboy. Jesus is Lord and Master. He is King of Kings. And yes, when you know Him, you can call Him a friend and brother. Jesus, in fact, called us His friends. But we ought never treat Him with that level of, of, that level of indifference, of thinking of Him like, like He's just a good old boy. He's just a homeboy. He's somebody um, that, that will accept everything that we have to give Him and, and won't call us out on anything. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's Lord and He's Master. And, 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 and Jude calls these men ungodly because he says, they are destitute of any reverential awe towards God. They have no respect for Him, and they feel no duty towards Him. They might wear the uniform of the faith, but what's going, in their, what's going on in their heart and in their mind doesn't match what they're wearing on their sleeve. 
They're in the church. That's what Jude said. There are certain men that have crept into your bodies, your assemblies that are ungodly. No reverential awe, no respect for, no duty towards God. Now we're familiar with the verse that the Apostle Paul used in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 that says that he ought to guard against people who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And the Apostle Paul said, from such people turn away. And he dealt with it in other places and said, put them out. Don't have any fellowship with them. Um, if, any, if you have any man that is called a brother that does this or does that, and they're living this kind of way, you, you have um, an obligation and a duty to separate yourselves from them. From such turn away. Having a form of godliness, but, uh, which is the appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And I believe that power is in reference to our transformation by that power of God. We deny the power of God, not only to save us from our sins, but to deliver us from them. He said, from such, turn away. Now, if, if, if we want to uncover the ungodly, if you want to know who the ungodly are, Jude gives us two clues to look for uh, in those that are living as traitors to the truth. He gives us two clues in that fourth verse about the people who he called ungodly. This is how you can identify them. Number one, they deny God's authority in their life. He used the term Lord twice at the end of that. They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That word Lord is master. That word Lord is the one who is over us, superior, our authority, the one we take orders from, um, the one who commands us and we heed and obey. And so Jude says if you want to know who these ungodly men are, they are men who deny the authority of God. They reject his right to rule in their lives through the revelation of of his word now they're not denying the existence of God they're not even denying the existence of the Savior they're denying his lordship over them they're denying his right to rule they, they may love the promises of God but they laugh at the principles of God they may covet those gifts that God hands out but they gawk at the commands that he gives. That denial of lordship thing is, is, is it, it kind of goes like this save me, but don't govern me. Deliver me from the penalty of sin, but I don't have any interest in being delivered from the power of sin. Give me everything that I ask you for, but don't expect anything from me in return. You can be my savior but I'm going to be my own master. Now those are the people that Jude's identifying. The people that have crept into church and who claim Jesus as their Savior, but who reject God and the Son as their master, as their sovereign ruler. And I want, I want to caution you, that is an infectious attitude. That is an infectious attitude. That When it creeps into the church and people begin to, 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 to live as if God has no authority in their life when they deny that rightful authority, if, if listen, if your kids see it in the home, they're going to adopt that attitude. Um, when you let it creep into a church and you don't deal with it, you don't, you don't identify the, this, this 
this false doctrine, this heresy, um, it, it is infectious. It'll permeate a whole church. And, and listen, there are examples all around us of that happening in our culture, in our time, in this history that we're living in. Um, whole denominations are being turned away from the truth and being turned into fables because they had an attitude of indifference toward the sovereign authority of God in their life. Uh, and I have a lot of United Methodist friends. The United Methodist Church, um, we have a lot of, uh, of historic roots with them, but that's a lot of what has happened to the United Methodist Church. They let this group of people creep into the leadership positions of the church, and they begin to, the, to deny the authority of God's Word, the, the Lordship of Christ over our lives, and they, and they started letting some things slip in the door. And it has infected uh, almost the whole denomination. The only thing that has held the United Methodist Church together for the last 30 40 years is the southeastern jurisdiction which is the Bible Belt of America and the African delegation of United Methodists they have held uh, they have held the line on scriptural authority on God's authority in our life they're the only thing that has kept the denomination from splintering and it is splintering now I believe those churches that are pulling away, that are turning aside, that are rejecting those ungodly leaders, that are rejecting God's authority, I believe that church is, is sound and that God is going to bless that and they're going to rebound and see a resurgence there. I've got a lot of friends that are in that camp who are losing all of their retirement that they've laid up all those years, who are walking away from everything that they've worked for in that church because they are ready to move forward under the authority of God's word in their life and in the life of their church body without contradiction from their leadership. I, I can put this real simple to you. Never say no to the Lord. Never say no to the Lord. If he's your Lord, you have no right to say no to him. Watch, watch documentaries when there were monarchies in place. You didn't say no to the king. Now granted, some of those kings were unrighteous and, and, and ungodly themselves and asked people to do things they shouldn't have been doing and they submitted themselves to the authority of God over the king. But in, in the days of the monarchy, when the king gave orders, you obeyed his orders. And listen, God is a, Christ is a king who makes no mistakes. All of his commands to us are good. They're good for us. They're good for those who watch us. They're good for us. When he gives a command, it's in our best interest to say yes and to obey. It's never in our best interest to say no to the Lord. These people who deny God's authority have essentially crowned themselves. They are presiding over their own lives. They are walking according to their own preferences. They submit only to what suits them. If it don't suit them, they don't submit to it. They, and, and listen to me, they, they'll take this word and cherry pick it for everything that they love and for everything that they deny, they just leave it alone. As if we have the right and privilege to do that. The second thing that, that Jude identified, not only that they deny God's authority, but they abuse God's gift. And he explains expli explicitly how they do that. They turn the grace of God into a license, that's what lasciviousness means, a license to be lawless. They turn the grace of God, you, and I mean, you think about this for a minute, think of, we, we sing about amazing grace, we exalt 
the merit of grace. We talk about we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift. Grace is the greatest gift God has ever given to us in His Son. Grace is an incredible thing. How do you take something like grace and make it wicked? You turn it into a license to sin, to live lawlessly, to act without any moral restraint, to be unrestrained by the truth of God's Word. In Romans chapter 6, you hear me quote this verse often. In fact, you hear me quote all of these next few verses often. The Apostle Paul was talking about, um, about everything that, 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 that Christ had done for us and what we have in Him. And, and in, in one place in chapter 5, he says um, uh, how we're saved by grace and not by keeping of the law and that it doesn't matter. In verse 1, he said, um, that, or in, in chapter 5, he said, where sin abounds, where there's a whole lot of sin, there's much more grace. Listen, I'm thankful for that. I told you, when I got saved, I thought I had to make a list of all my sins. There ain't enough paper and pen in the world. I'd never get off my knees if I had to confess everyone. And I knew that. I knew that my sin debt was deep. I knew there wasn't any way I could dig myself out of that debt. And that's what Paul meant. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And the Apostle Paul knew what some folks were going to do with that. Maybe he was already seeing some of it. So he asked this rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And I want to tell you, there's some folks that will answer that question today. Yeah. Yeah, we got grace. We can live any way we want to. Yeah, we can live. We got grace. We can live lawlessly. Yeah, we got grace. The law is worthless in our lives. We don't need it anymore. Let's cast it aside. Whatever suits us, that's what we'll do. Whatever we prefer, that's where we'll walk. The Apostle Paul said, Shall we continue that grace may abound? My understanding this is the strongest possible language that he could use in Greek. God forbid. Paul answers this question and saying, absolutely not. How can you, if you're dead in sin, live any longer therein? Writing to Titus in Titus chapter 2 verse 12, the 11th verse, he said, The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. Verse 12 says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. Righteously, godly in this present world. What does grace do? It doesn't give a license to sin. It teaches us how to live out from under the power of sin. When somebody abuses God's gift that way, when somebody who claims to be a Christian just keeps living their life in willful and unrepentant sin, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 calls that trotting underfoot the blood of the Son of God. Trotting underfoot the blood of the Son of God and doing despite unto the Spirit of grace. I see I skipped one of the verses that I gave her. The Bible makes it very plain. The Apostle Paul said, The foundation of God stands sure, and it has this seal. The Lord knows those that are His. Do you know that not everybody that calls that says, Lord, Lord? Jesus said that. Not everybody that says, Lord. not You've got to do more than call me Lord. You've got to make me Lord. 
And he said, I, there are people on that day that are going to stand be, before me and say, Lord, Lord, look what we did in your name. We cast out devils. We did all kind of wonderful works. And Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Some translations say it like this, you lovers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Listen, Jesus is talking about the same subject that Paul was talking about and that Jude is talking about. The foundation of God stands sure. He knows those that are his. But it ain't just those that are paying him lip service. It is those who have surrendered to his lordship over their life. And so he concludes that verse with, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Walk away from sin. Now I'm going to give you a warning. It's going by different names. It's flying different banners. But I'm, telling, I'm going to tell you right now, to run from it, and if you've got kids, make them run from it. Some of them are calling it woke theology. I'm going to tell you, it's a theology that needs to go back to sleep. Some of them are calling it progressive theology. There ain't nothing progressive about it. It's an old lie that's been rehatched in the, from the pit of hell. It's been around since Jude wrote this. And it'll die off and it'll come surging back. And it'll die off and it'll come surging back. Whether you call it woke, whether you call it progressive, or whether you call it liberal, it is, a, it is a demonic lie hatched from the pit of hell itself. It is having comfort and salvation without conformity to Christ. It is not the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It is having salvation from sin without submission to Christ as Lord. That is not the faith. It's all a lie. And there are millions of people falling for it. And, and I'm, what I'm afraid of is that a lot of youth are just getting sucked into it. Because they're making it sound so appealing. Yeah, you can have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, you can, you can have Jesus and a, and a home in heaven forever and forever while you live your life on earth any way that you want to. Even though it's a shame and reproach to the cause of Christ. Because where sin abounds, grace covers you now listen those that are truly trusting in Christ and are following him as Lord your sin his grace does abound over our sin the Bible says if we walk in the light as he is in the light the blood of Jesus Christ his son continuously cleanses us from all sin but what is the what is the what is the preamble to that if we walk in the light as he is in the light and he went on to say uh, he that saith he walks in, in light or that has fellowship with him and walks in darkness, lies and does not the truth. That's John writing, first, the first epistle, the first chapter of John. Listen, this is all through the scripture. Don't get sucked into it. In fact, we got to do just the opposite. We got to stand against it. We have to be contenders. When people are denying God's authority in their life, when they're abusing the gift of grace in their life, we've got to call that what it is. It's heretical. It is not the faith. It is a perversion of it. The apostle or Jude tells us that they, were, that they are destined from that for damnation. Those next few verses... He literally says that, that, that people like this have not, will not, and cannot win. In verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance. 
though you once knew it, inferring that they must have forgot. How that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness, under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So, so Jude says the, these kind of people, these ungodly people who deny God's authority and who abuse God's gift of grace are doomed. They're destined for damnation. He gave three examples there. Israel's unbelief was the first one. Israel had enough faith to sacrifice a lamb, but not enough faith to conquer the promised land. If you look at Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, you do the math, there were 603,550 men who left Egypt. There were 603,548 who died in the wilderness. Two went in. You can read it all through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews uses this illustration several times because it's written to Hebrews. And it says, Do, don't you depart. Don't you let an evil heart of unbelief make you walk away from what you have in Christ. Israel's unbelief. They sacrificed the lamb, but they weren't about to fight the giants. They weren't about to, listen, what God told them when they went into the promised land was to dispossess the enemies. Literally, don't let one of them stay. And, and if you read the book of Judges, what did they do? They started letting them move back. But when they marched in in Joshua, God said, they can't stay here. This is promised land. I'm setting up the boundaries. My people are going to live in the midst of You don't marry into them. You don't adopt their religions. You don't do any of that. It'll corrupt you. And listen to what that tells you in the life of the believer. After you've been delivered from Egypt's bondage, you go take possession of the promised land. You drive out the enemies before you. And listen, the enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. You push that out of your life. You rid your heart and your life of those enemies. You don't listen to the the lust of your flesh. You don't listen to the lust of your eyes. You don't give in to the pride of life. You dispossess your heart of the enemies. You dispossess your life of the enemies so that you can claim the inheritance that God would have for you. The death of Jesus Christ paid our sin debt without a doubt. But the resurrection of Christ also delivered us from the power and that the Bible says the same spirit that brought Jesus from the grave lives in us. And his name is holy. And he won't ever lead you into sin. He won't ever lead you in, into contradiction to God's word. He will never lead you to abuse God's grace. He will never lead you to reject God's authority. He will always do exactly the opposite of that. Angels insurrection, second example. 
Listen, there's a whole lot of speculation about what this is about. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of insight into it, so I'm not going to speculate a whole lot. A lot of folks say it's that whole issue of the sons of God, the daughters of men, angels and angels and humans in sexual union in some kind of way. I'm not even going to speculate about because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of insight into the angels' insurrection here. But what 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 the Scripture says specifically that we know is that they left their proper place and they went somewhere that they did not have permission to go. That they crossed a boundary that God had set. And that because they crossed that boundary, they were locked up. Y'all remember those demons that possessed that man when they met Jesus that day? They begged him not to cast them into the pit. And there's already angels there waiting. They're not free. They're not loose. They're not roaming the world. Um, Listen, they they said, "Don't, don't cast us there. Don't bind us up there. Because there are angels bound there. They left their proper place. They crossed the line of God's sovereignty. And God banished them, bound them under darkness until the final judgment. The Bible says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And so when God says no and one goes anyway, then they're worthy of the condemnation that they brought upon themselves. Listen to me very carefully. I'm going to move on. We're going to finish as quickly as I can. It is utterly impossible. Listen to me. It is utterly impossible to rail against God's sovereignty in your life and over your life and get away with it. It is impossible to rail against God's sovereignty in your life and over your life and get away with it. You will not get away with it. And then last but not least, Sodom's immorality. They took the good gift of sex, which is a good gift. Sex came before the fall of man, but God had a context for it. And the context for sex was a man and his wife. A man and a woman. Not a man and many women, but a man and a woman. Not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman. A man and a woman. And so what happened in, what you, you can read about Noah's day. In fact, Peter used Noah as an example. They made a mockery out of marriage. They, they married anybody that they wanted to, as many as they wanted to. They took God's good gift of sex out of God's design plan and perverted it. For their own pleasure. Now he gave two descriptions. One was fornication. That means to be utterly unchaste. It is a lack of chastity. It is, it is, it is sexual promiscuity. It is taking it outside of the boundary of marriage and taking it any way that you want it to go. And the other word that he used was strange flesh. There's been all kind of perverted interpretations of that, strange flesh. But he used Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. And the example of Sodom and Gomorrah was that it was different than God's design. Specifically, it was same sex. It was, it was homosexuality. You listen, you, if you listen to woke, progressive, liberal theology, they're going to tell you that Sodom, was, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of a lack of, hospi- uh, of being hospitable. Jude said it was because they gave themselves over to no sense of sexual purity and went so far as to engaging in same-sex relationships with each other. 
the fire and brimstone that rained down on Sodom is going to be nothing compared to the eternal fire of hell that's reserved for that kind of immorality. I don't care if you don't amen me. That's what the Bible says. Read Romans. You ain't got to go to Old Testament. Read Romans chapter 1. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, I did, I, I did hear one woke progressive liberal theologian the other day who finally said what he believed without any reservation. He said the, that, that all the Old Testament condemned was, was homosexual rape or men-boy relationships. That he said Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality and the Apostle Paul was a homophobe. In other words, he just rejected 14 books out of the New Testament and said that Paul didn't speak for Christ. At least he's honest. Paul took them back to the past to show them that God's justice and judgment would always come to pass. He said, I don't want you to forget this. Because there's some things you need to know. And the first is this. God's character is immutable. That means it is unchanging. It is unchangeable. It is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God is not changing. And the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. They're not two different gods. They don't have two different standards. They're not different attributes. They have the same nature, the same character. Because they are the same God. The immutable character of God. It will not change. Malachi chapter 3, God said, For I am the Lord, I change not. James chapter 1 verse 17 says that in the Father there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God's character won't change to accommodate our wishes. God's character won't change to accommodate our whims. God's character doesn't change to accommodate our preferences. God doesn't, God doesn't exist to suit us. We exist to exalt Him. What he has been, he always will be. God's word is immutable. God, God's word does not change. It is as steadfast as he is. It is settled in heaven. It is sufficient for our life on earth, and it is steadfast for all eternity. That's what the Bible says about itself. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it? Good. God's word won't be added to. God's word won't be subtracted from. What God has commanded, God will demand. What God has promised, He will do. And by the way, not all of God's promises are good. He has promised justice and judgment just as surely as He has promised the believer mercy and grace. If you reject either one of those, it is a damnable offense. God is and never has been subject to our judgment. You say what you want to about God. God is not subject to our judgment. And He never will be. We're subject to His. There are men today that are standing in judgment of God. And what he said. And who he is. But in the end. 
Justice and judgment. His justice, his judgment will prevail. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 said all these things that happened in the past to Israel were examples. They're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. Listen, God, the opponents of God, the opponents of God's truth never win. And, and, and listen, when we do what God has called us to do and warn them, some of them will be saved. Jude talks about that at the end. I'm not going to jump into that now. I don't have time to. But, but Jude literally says, some of these folks, you can snatch back from the fire. But you won't do that unless you're contending for the truth. Unless you're contending for the faith. There are people out there who will be convicted and who will repent and who will turn away. I was one. First Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 calls the visible church the pillar and ground of truth. The pillar and ground of truth. Now there's a subtle twisting going on today. By that crowd of woke, liberal, progressive, theologian, people who call themselves Christians who said all we got to do is love. And, it, and it's a whole redefining of love that they're, the Bible says that whom the Lord loves, he rebukes and chastens. If we dive into the book of Revelation, you're going to find out in the seven churches, Jesus had some negative things to say about what was going on in his churches. And he specifically said, if you don't deal with it, I'm going to deal with you because of it. The church is the pillar and ground of truth because the truth is what sets men free. The truth is what sets men free. So Satan's attack is always going to be against the truth. If the enemy infiltrates the truth, he's going to twist it. If he, if he infiltrates the church, he's going to twist the truth. He's going to falsify faith. He's going to raise up rebels to the truth and damn all those that are deceived. Now that's as simple as I can put it. If you let the enemy get in the doors of the, of the church and do what he wants to do, that's what he's going to do. Isn't that worth contending against? Isn't that worth standing up and speaking out against? I'm going to tell you something. Hurting somebody's feelings is better than them burning in hell forever. The, you, you might, I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. Every person that has ever repented of sin, every person that has ever been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, every reformation that has ever taken place in anybody's life, any revival that the church has ever seen came because people were offended by the truth. Enough that they surrendered themselves to it, repented of it, and walked away from their error. That's where it comes. And if you take the offense out of the gospel, you don't have a gospel left. If there's a traitor in your house or a traitor in your own heart that denies the authority of God or that turns grace into something to excuse sin, you better deal with it. Expose it. Know that it is your enemy. Anything Anyone who denies God's authority or abuses God's good gift of grace is a traitor to the truth. I'm going to say that again. I'm done. Anybody 
or anything that denies God's rightful authority in the believer's life or uses grace as a license to live in sin is a traitor to the truth that we need to contend against. Let's stand together. Lord, I agree with the theologians that I've read behind and studying for Jude that it may be the most unread, neglected and misunderstood letter in all of the New Testament. While at the same time, at this point in time, in history, it may be the most necessary and essential Amen. for us to look at, learn from, and apply to our lives and to the church. Lord, I pray you'd help us to do that. And I'll be the first one to admit that there have been times in my life and that my own heart, my own, my own will, my own way has led me contrary to your authority times that I have trampled under my feet the blood of the son of God knowing that I was living a life that was a shame and reproach Lord there have been times that the Holy Spirit has convicted me of sin that I've done despite unto that just like the writer of Hebrews warns against but I'm thankful God that by your mercy and your grace and by the power of your truth I've experienced over and over again a conversion bowed again at your feet submitted again to your authority let grace teach me how to live a life that makes me different that honors you Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that is fighting hard against you, I pray that today would be their day of surrender. Lord, I don't have any hatred or ill will or animosity towards the people that have been deceived. But I intend until I draw my last breath to contend for the truth. Even if the truth offends those people. Lord, I pray you give me the grace to do that, the wisdom to do that. There are some that can be saved and there are some that will be saved. Help us to all be willing to stand. Identify the enemy. We'll praise you for it. God, if there's one here today that don't know Jesus, I know this hasn't been as evangelistic some but nobody in this building is going to be saved by their own works or by their own merits we all going to fall short and we all have fallen short there's none righteous not one of us the Bible says that you extended your love toward us while we were yet sinners Christ died for us for somebody here that never submitted themselves to Christ as Savior and Lord I pray that today would be their day of salvation May they surrender their life to you. In Jesus' name we pray.